Welcome to NavChat, the show for the New Zealand orienteering and navigation sports community. Joe, how's it going? Good, Eugene. It's good, thanks. So a quick announcement for everyone. We've got a few changes to NavChat coming up. Instead of just Tom Reynolds and myself, we're going to be rolling through with some other co-hosts. So this should help uh, add a little, uh, add some different perspectives to what we talk about and um, hopefully, yeah, enable a slightly more more varied show. And we're also changing a few things uh, around the structure of the show and uh, that, that'll be obvious or if it's not obvious, then that's fine. So I, I won't explain um, any of that. But uh, Joe, how have you been the past month? Last time I saw you was uh, after World Champs in, in Denmark and you flew home. The rest of us have been having a good time here in Europe and you went back to winter. So how have you been? Yeah, I feel very jealous seeing all the photos and feel often adventures in Europe. I'm coming back to, I think it's the wettest winter Christchurch has had for a long time. So it's been a bit of a shock to the system. But um, yeah, it's been good. Starting to get back into a bit of training now. It's cool. been fun. What are you what are you working towards and what's the schedule? Um, there's a bit of a lack of orienteering events on the horizon, but the ultra long is definitely something I wanna I wanna compete at. Um that's at the start of September. Cool. And is that at Hogs Back once again? Yeah, it's a it's a cool course. It's a one way from Hogs Back to the Castle Hill village. Okay. Have they extended the map further then? Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but that, there is sort of a gap between the two maps. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do, but that's mm. the plan so far. I've run the trail back um, just in a run, which is really nice. And, yeah, I can see how it's not, not too far to connect that um, that final flat area and then down through the beach forest into Castle Hill Village. So, yeah, that'll be really cool. I am feeling really a bit jealous about uh, missing out on that one. Uh, but are you keeping yourself entertained? Like, is there, uh, how's the coverage of uh, the, the European races for you? Yeah, it's been good. I love watching um, Jaywalk and a bit of, um, looking at a bit of the O-ring and O-ring and results now. It's been, it's been cool. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jaywalk was obviously quite, quite different, but um, it made for some really exciting, exciting races in the sprints in the town. Mm, I thought so too. I thought it was really interesting, and uh, the commentators were great. And uh, they had the the GPSs. Yeah, were, were a bit flaky, but they had a lot of GPSs on people, so they could really bring up whoever they wanted uh, onto, onto the tracking when they were doing well. And yeah, I thought it was really cool to watch. And yeah, so we'll we'll get into some of those um, topics later on. But um, a few other things that uh, I thought was um, interesting and notable in the past uh, month was world games which also had coverage uh that, that was kind of interesting from a different perspective did you watch the uh the sprint i didn't watch and watch the full thing yet mm-hmm. but i sort of skimmed through skimmed through right. a bit um yeah it caught me by surprise that one um, yeah so the course looked quite cool and um, what i found interesting and surprising was they didn't have the usual iof commentators in there they actually had some commentators who were not orienteers and i thought they did reasonably well considering how complex and specific orienteering is um 
And I think there were some interesting points to learn here, actually. The commentators were pr pretty much doing a good job until they looked at the GPS tracking. And we, after using GPS trackers for years, know how wobbly they are and know how they drift off to the side and then kind of stay with that offset for quite some time. They, they sit you know, 20, 30 meters off to the east and you have to translate that GPS track in your mind. But it was really throwing the commentators off. Uh, they really believed that the GPS tracker was absolutely accurate. Um, and so that's one thing probably to learn uh, when we do more tracking stuff in the future, that actually this is the, this is now the barrier to uh, newcomers understanding orienteering. It's not the not actually what's going on because we've got so many cameras out in the forest, out in the terrain. We've got pe people with cameras following runners, but it's actually the GPS is uh, misleading especially around high buildings where the GPS tracks get bounced around. So yeah, that was one other thing that I found quite interesting about World Games, but it's great that um, Tim got a gold. Uh, so he won the sprint there and just a bit of background on World Games. It's uh, only some countries get a, get the chance to send their teams there. So you know, it's a bit of a half-baked half field. Um, and I think a lot of people take it as quite a fun series of races, especially when you've just come down from the highs of World Champs. So that's a bit of a context on why it maybe doesn't get quite so much coverage given kind of world games as status in the world. Yeah. Still, still mostly the top of the top of the top nations turn up and then you have some, some others filling in the gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim definitely had to push out like Casper Fosser and a number of other top runners to win. So yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. Pretty cool to watch. Uh, and uh, it looked really hot as well. Uh, and and humid. Yeah. I saw lots of athletes commenting about that. That was quite quite different to their sort of European summer temperatures and humidity. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, we also had some mountain bike orienteering uh, that's been going on in Europe. So this was uh, a few a few pictures from from the field. Uh, Martin Pete, our lone representative at world mountain bike orienteering champs so that's really cool that we could have a silver fern there and um just remind everyone that new zealand does have have these sports um quick quick snippet of the map have you done much mountain bike orienteering joe i've never done it i've um i've planned rogaine's rogaine's for it that martin pete's competed at um but no i've never never done it myself mm -hmm. yeah i've done a little bit and it's, uh, I guess it was like sprint orienteering, but with a lot more map memory because you're yeah. focusing on the ground a lot more. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, definitely some challenges that you could hum and ha over some, some route choice challenges that you could think about for quite a long time. So yeah, it's a tough one. And I'm not surprised that people like Tim Robertson do quite well at this, that really fast information processing with these multiple routes. Um, and here's a photo of Tim also uh, on the podium. Pretty happy with that chunky medal, <laughs> super chunky, really cool. Uh, European five days. That's uh, we'll, we'll get more into into that later. But you wanted to uh, talk about World Masters Games a little bit. Yeah. So there was um, one race i i saw that daniel Hillman actually got beaten which coming into world masters i thought oh daniel's 
he's racing. That's a bit sad for everyone else, everyone else there. But he actually had a bit of a nightmare at this number five on the on the middle distance. And he was fresh. He hadn't raced the sprint beforehand. Um, so Daniel Hoodman's in blue and uh, his competitor, Oscar uh, Alexander, is uh, in red. And it looks like he just narrowly missed it twice. He mentioned... He mentioned on on his Instagram that he was yeah like just just beside it and just didn't see the flag, so it was one of those where he was in the right in the right place. Yeah, yeah, that that looks pretty brutal. It seems like a undue punishment for being so close, uh, but it does happen. It does happen from time to time that you just uh, haven't haven't gone quite far enough to see the flag, or there's a tree in your way or something like that. So. Hey, it happens it happens to all of us, but yeah, that, that must have been pretty hard to hard to stomach when he came home and looked at his GPS and saw how close he had gone to the control twice. Yeah, for sure. He was pretty gracious in defeat um, from the photos I saw. I thought it was pretty cool for that Ukrainian Alexander um, to to be able to beat Daniel Hillman. And his mm-hmm. best result before this was uh, 28th place in Eoch Long back in 2010, which Daniel beat him. Mm-hmm. Daniel actually won that race by 18 minutes. So, yeah, he's had, he's had history with Daniel in the past, but Daniel's been so far ahead. So, it was cool. cool to get a chance to beat him, I imagine. And this is the sprint terrain that they used, which looks fun as well. Uh, lots of virtuous challenges to, to solve for. GPS is not making much sense in the high buildings as well. You can see them just bouncing around all over the place, but the terrain looks looked fun. Uh, and yeah, I hope everyone everyone's there had quite a good time on the coast there in the middle of the holiday season. Yeah, quite a few contours in that um, sprint as well, as you can see. Yeah, yeah, definitely another element to consider. Something we don't often have to deal with in sprint orienteering, uh, but you really have to understand the contours on this map also. Cool. Um, any other any other things from the past month that you've uh, you've done or found interesting? Uh, two weeks ago, I went down to Snow Farm with a, a UCOC-funded um, trip. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. cool. It was not often we get to do ski orienteering in New Zealand. So this is a, a yearly event that's put on by Remarkable's Orienteering Club, um, sort of spearheaded by Chris and Emily Fawn. Um, so that's pretty cool. It was two days. First day was... A long distance and the second day is a one hour or two hour road game um yeah so that was that was quite good fun it was slightly smaller field this year because a lot of people would take an opportunity to go to europe or to the schools events that are happening the same weekend mm. but it was still a nice turnout and a really good day on the first day for the long distance blue skies no wind mm. so people have cross-country skis i really haven't seen anyone other than chris with cross-country skis in new zealand most people there, so hire hire them. And if you go to the event, they and you pay the entry fee for the orienteering, they give you half price for maybe it's the trail pass, and it's also quite cheap to hire hire the cross country skis as well. And that's quite cool. There's actually two different types of cross country skis, so you can get a chance to test out test out both of them. One's sort of better for beginners, but you can't go quite as fast, and the other one is a bit more advanced, but you can get a lot a lot better speed. Interesting. Yeah, I still haven't done it. 
um, but would definitely be uh, interested in giving it a crack on time. And I imagine it's fairly similar to mountain bike orienteering in the sense that the, the route choices are quite discreet, very much like sprint orienteering. But yes. is the scheduling the main challenge or can you ski without looking at the ground? You can you can ski without looking at the ground. Um, I, not many people have map boards. You can get map boards that kind of attach to a harness in front of you, so you can read the map as you're as you're going. Um, whereas most people are either holding the map on the hand, or you have a piece of string around your neck holding and then that tied onto the map. Um, you can also go off off track in the ski orienteering, so that doesn't normally happen in the mountain bike. Orienteering, um, so that's another another sort of element element to it. Cool, cool. All right, some interesting stuff that's that's happened over the past month. Um, should we get on to the guest interview? I had a chance to sit down and talk with Nikan, who's been uh, a longtime competitor of mine and also quite a good mapper in my personal opinion. And so I sat down with him and uh, asked him a few questions about his mapping. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Nick. Thanks for coming on NavChat. That's okay. Nice to be here. So Tom and I were keen to hear from some of the mappers who have um, done a lot of the uh, maps we really love to run on over the past uh, past years. And um, I thought I'd talk to you as someone who was quite interesting as someone who got into mapping quite young and pick your brains about mm. what, you, uh, what draw, drew you to mapping and how you developed your style. So... Um, but but first, where are you in the country at the moment, and are you healthy and fit? Uh, yeah, pretty healthy. I'm in Queenstown currently, as you can see by this thick down jacket. It's pretty cold here, but that means there's lots of snow around, which is good. So uh, yeah, no, fairly healthy and getting out amongst it. Haven't been doing much orienteering, but there's so much other stuff to do that it's been uh, keeping me occupied. Yeah. Cool. And uh, when did you start orienteering? At what age? Um, I was towards the end of primary school, I think year seven. Uh, yeah, so that's quite a few years ago now. I, yep. I'd have to calculate how many. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when did you first show an interest in mapping for orienteering? Um, pretty soon afterwards. I guess I've always been really interested in maps, so orienteering was a good fit. Um, but I didn't really do any orienteering mapping there for a couple of years. And I just started off with doing little updates and things for the Wellington Club, just okay. like after after school, just to sort of stop me from getting bored. Yeah. And were they sprint sprint maps, urban maps that you were updating uh, for them, or did you get into the forest quite early? Um, I guess I got into the forest quite early in the sense that a lot of Wellington sprint maps are or were uh, foresty, you know, being in the town belt. Um, they, I guess they were technically sprint maps, but there was a lot of off-track stuff in the in the bush. So um, I think maybe the first or second map I updated was Tinnacory Hill, which is uh, renowned for being particularly green and bushy. So, yeah, I definitely didn't um, shy away from the forest maps in the beginning. But mm -hmm. obviously, um, well, I think looking back, I think the sprint maps I did in the beginning were better than the forest maps. Forest maps are harder to get right, I think. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about because that transition to sprint where everything's quite discreet and the boundaries of things are quite clear, mm. transitioning towards forest where you've got to come up with discrete boundaries in a place where the boundaries are more fuzzy and more continuous. So 
was that something you noticed as a challenge at the time? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I guess starting off mapping, it was very easy to lose your sense of distance. And so you start mapping from one point and going into the forest and you just, you just lose the sense of scale and then everything becomes warped. So I found I really had to define every area segment it out using a track and a fence and a stream or, or whatever, just into little portions. And then, then you can sort of fill in the blanks between those obvious features. But, mm. but like you say, with a sprint, everything's well-defined. The main thing with a sprint is not putting everything in because it just doesn't fit. You've got to be very selective with your detail. Cool. As you did more maps, when was the first uh, map that you did on your own from scratch? Mm. Um, would have been before I went over to Norway, so when I was still at high school. Um, I'm not sure exactly which one. Um, a lot of the maps I started with were, um, I guess, to like one to 10,000 sort of traditional orienteering maps, and then I converted them to sprint. So it was like a complete remap, basically basically a new map, just of somewhere that had already been mapped before. Um, and that probably would have been pretty early on, maybe the fourth or fifth area I worked on. Mm. I'm not sure exactly. I have to go back to my records. And mm. Yeah, that is, that is moving pretty fast. Uh, I definitely mm. found that I'd done like, a lot of sprint maps, but there was a point where I'd done a lot of sprint maps, but still didn't have the confidence to do contours in the forest. There was quite a long period of time where I was like in that that middle ground, and it sounds yeah. like you you yeah. pro progress quite fast. So, do you have any tips on getting your head around mapping contours? Um, having a really good base map start with helps. Obviously, um, if you've got lidar, that's great. Key thing with lidar is that it has so much detail in it, and often the detail doesn't actually exist in real life, um, and and it's about simplifying that down. Um, whereas if you're starting with some other base map material like photogrammetry contours or something, often they don't have enough detail and you've got to sort of figure out which parts of the photogrammetry are accurate and which parts aren't and fill in the blanks there. And that can be pretty tricky, but often it's an iterative process. Um, you know, you'll do a bit and then you'll come at it from a different angle and you'll realise actually that's, that's not quite right. I've got to fit five contours into the slope and it only looks like too so clearly messed something up somewhere else um but uh, yeah i guess my tip would be to get the solid base map as as much as you can um even if it involves going out with a gps and um contouring around um you know just by eye it's not going to be perfect but it's going to give you some rough rough contour shapes to work with that you can then um, fill in the blanks between mm -hmm. cool do you feel like you developed your own style of mapping as you progress? Because at least as an, an orienteer competitor, I do notice that different mappers have different styles and you can recognize some of those characteristics if you're familiar enough with a number of their maps. Do you feel like you developed a certain style and in what way, how would one recognize a Nikan map? <laughs> um, I think I do to, to an extent, obviously you're somewhat limited by what's on the ground but um i i think i liked <laughs> somewhat being the key word there there's always some interpretation available um i think not being too fixed on putting everything in its exact position especially when you've got lots of features nearby um you've got the ability to spread things out quite a bit before anyone actually realizes 
that um, things are vastly distorted. And if they, if it means they can read the map, I think that's definitely a better outcome. Um, so, so yeah, yeah if it means that it's clearer on a printed page, maybe you exactly, can yeah. just spread, spread things out a little bit. Yeah, there's no point having features stacked on top of each other if it's more precise because no one can read it. So you might as well not even put them on. Whereas if you just sort of spread them out, you know, when we're mapping, especially on OCAD, we're very zoomed in, you know, 32 times zoom or whatever. There's nobody who reads a map like that when they're running through the forest. So I think, you know, just like stepping back a bit, picking out one of the key features and, 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 and then seeing what else can go in between. Um, so, yeah, I guess my style is simplified and somewhat artistic as opposed to being uh, true exactly to what's on the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I think at first when we grow up orienteering, we're super excited about how precise and accurate these maps are. And that might be the case most of the time. But, yeah, it is impossible actually to do these maps and make them usable. I think, yeah, I really agree with you there. And do you think the same applies for a lot of sprint maps in some, oh, some detailed 100%. areas? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you look at like a wall, how thick is a wall? It might be like 200 millimeters thick, whereas what's it, 0.4 millimeters on the map? I don't know what that corresponds to, but it'd be at least a couple of meters on the, printed on the map, which is, which is crazy. So if you've got narrow passageways and buildings and then we want to try and fit a man-made object in there with the big cross. That thing's massive. So you've really got to spread things out. Buildings, unless they're tiny buildings, they have a lot of ability to sort of shrink a bit and absorb some of that space to give you more room yeah. to make things clear. Yeah, I think I've been surprised by how much you can shrink a building and mm -hmm. as an orienteer, um, in the moment, not notice. You just, you count the buildings and you see the shape mm -hmm. of the buildings, but you don't see the length of the building and how much it's been trimmed off sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important that when there are big features like walls that are obvious on the ground, you need to keep them in on the map and not introduce skinnier lines, like, you know, the fence without any tags, um, because it's just, no, I can read it. There's, you've got to remember people running. We're not, we're not walking around like we are when mapping. We're actually running during the race. So it's got to be easy to read in a hurry. Cool. Well, there's some interesting ideas there and hopefully some food for thought for those who are either mapping and um, thinking of improving or interested in getting into mapping. So thanks a lot, Nick, for sharing those ideas that you've developed over the years. No worries, Jane. Thanks for having me. That was really cool to hear from Nick. I um, recently took up a bit of mapping myself. So it was cool to hear how he sort of processes, especially for, for sprint maps and you really have to kind of simplify and change things around to improve the improve the readability um yeah i think he matched hogs back possibly which is used for the ultra line we mentioned earlier um so there'll be a chance everyone to experience a mapping piece of mapping that he's done and I'm, i think that was all without lidar so there's a lot of forest in there that he was walking around to get all the contours which yeah really makes you appreciate a lot more when you think about it like that yeah i didn't realize that i assumed most maps in the past 10 years had had a lidar base but yeah that's interesting to know i've also used some of his maps here in wellington that must have been some of his earlier ones and you can see his style quite early on uh these very smooth very smooth lines and uh, maybe making the re-entrance 
uh, just a little bit wider than what they actually are on the map so that they're more visible and you can see here yeah, some of the boulders just spaced out a little bit more uh, so i think that's a good lesson and obviously there's there's too far there is a way to push that style too far personally i've really enjoyed nick's mapping uh, but as connoisseur of maps uh, i can yeah, definitely tell his style on, on paper you can see the, the kind of smoothness he also did riverhead forest or the original riverhead forest map in auckland and that had those very rounded re-entrance and you, you kind of get there and things are a little more a little more jagged but you definitely don't miss the details on the map so uh, yeah that was that was really interesting to hear yeah i've um seen a little while ago there was uh, i think i saw on facebook an example from a i think it might have been an iof sort of mapping um conference even and they spent a day all these mappers mapping the same piece piece of land and it was really interesting to see all the different styles it was the exact exact same location but just every every single mapper had a different way different way to sort of display the information yeah and i think this feeds into uh one of the one of the topics that um we've got coming up so um i'll let you start though you brought one really interesting topic to to lead with so um what, what did you have to say about jaywalk yeah, so Jaywalk was was quite special this year, and the fact that um, quite late in the piece, the government um, placed a ban on all of the all of the forests, so you couldn't enter the forest because of fire risks in Portugal. Um, and I heard that this the law to be able to them to be able to do this is only enacted a year ago, so it was quite a quite a recent thing. And this was yeah big thing to happen in portugal um so that unfortunately mucked up a lot of the planned forest races as there are three four forest races in jaywalk and only one sprint um so had to work hard to organize something else luckily as you can see there the kiwis had a chance to train train in the forest beforehand and i've chatted to some of them and it sounds like they, they really enjoyed that um quite uh drastic changes in the weather too they had some of these trainings in thunderstorms and some of them in the 40 degree scorching heat so it was quite quite varied over there and one of the specialties is that like i say it was all quite late in the piece the organizers had to scramble to add in some more races so they decided to bring forward the first jaywalk sprint relay which was meant to occur next year and they um, planned a sprint relay for two days after the, the sprint that went ahead as planned. Um, but one quirk was because this was so late in the piece that they couldn't embargo any any more maps and all the teams had already been training on every single sprint map in the area that wasn't embargoed. So they had to reuse the same same terrain and the same map for the, for the sprint relay. Um, and one quirk, was that they were able to change where their temporary barriers were to um, change the map, but they also changed the mapping in in some areas. So they removed, um, as you can see there, near Control 16, they actually took away, they took away an impassable wall, 
which opened up a route choice on the on the sprint relay. So if you, if you go to the yeah to the right there, Gene. So on those top two photos, the individual sprint is the left, where there is a there is a wall between that building and the olive green, and now they've removed it on the next map, which they ran on two days later. And you can see in the terrain, it is it is passable. Um, it's sort of a, an old old rock formation, maybe. Um, but I thought that was that was quite interesting. And I wonder what you thought about that, Gene, about changing how you map stuff just two days in between the same yeah the same competition within a jaywalk yeah i've never seen this happen before um but i'm not not opposed to it i, I definitely think that um there is very variability in the mapping all the time and if if this seems like a complete no-no to you because the the terrain so, so just to someone who's listening is like what the hell you can't change the terrain one of these maps must be wrong maybe you haven't realized that mapping is fuzzy in the first place and i think that can be a bit hard to stomach for people who think that orientarian is this like finely tuned sport with um, perfect mapping yeah not not really actually the mapping is super fuzzy and as you said there are a number of articles out there that demonstrate this very clearly to show um, just how different areas can be interpreted. So I didn't actually notice this one on the map. I noticed the other one though, uh, that was down here because this caught a lot of people out in the uh, the individual sprint. A lot of people didn't see the wall on the map, ran for it, ran for the gap, then it's blocked. And so they've you can see all the red, uh, it's very cluttered in here with a lot going on, but it's from 11 to 12, isn't it? you have to go the green route, which is up to the road and then around around the top. But everyone in red here are making mistakes where they're running, trying to run straight, but there's actually a wall. There's no way to get through. And that wall just disappeared on the new map, as you can uh, see see in this picture on the top right, that the wall's gone. Uh, so I think that's cool, especially when you are forced to reuse an area and you don't want to unfairly advantage or disadvantage those that have memorized the map from the previous day you force everyone to start fresh and start critical of the new map so i think that's really smart uh the we're quite used to this now with the artificial fences so i think my concern would would be more around uh maybe people just not not expecting it at all and maybe jumping over something that they knew was possible the previous day um, or, or something like that. Whereas when it's with the artificial fences and it's in magenta on the map and this big out of bounds area, it's very obvious. Um, it's not just a thin black line that's changed. So I guess I worry that the the amount of ink on the page that's changed is so small that there's maybe a fairer way to do it where there's more ink on the page that indicates uh, the change. But I'm totally fine with a map being different from one day to the next. Um, also, it seems like some other changes were made that really don't have any bearing on the event, right? Do have you do you know anything about about that? Yeah, I don't really know why why they did that. It seems quite odd. It seems like an update that would happen six months later when the vegetation has changed slightly. Um, maybe it was that people complained about it 
um, and they said, oh, this isn't quite match, match right, and they thought there's opportunity for them to update it, but it does seem quite odd to me. Um, I think, like you're saying, I think it's it's better to be opening up gaps for the second time you race in it rather than closing gaps where people might have, you know, subconsciously thought, I've been here before, and they just run over it and don't check the map because they think that's fine. So I think there could have been some protests if that had happened and people got disqualified for it. Um, yeah, I, I still find it quite interesting. And I wonder, I'm not sure how clearly it was relayed to the athletes beforehand that the map could be changed. Um, it, if they said some gaps might be opened in tomorrow's race, then I think that I think that's mm -hmm. quite fair and everyone, everyone knows and has given warning to, mm -hmm. yeah, check their reading. Yep. So yeah, I think I'm getting the more we talk about it, the more I'm getting confident in this overarching principle that maps are variable. And if you are purely reliant on one feature on the map at a time, then your orientation is just not going to be very good most of the time anyway. So as a coach, I'm telling people you want to be holding your position relative to multiple features at the same time. And so if one thing's slightly different from one day to the next, you should just be like, oh, that's different. And I'm so in control that I'm like, I just noticed that that it's different. And so I think if it's if a map change is really throwing someone off, then perhaps they've got to look at their own navigation and wonder why they're so dependent on only one particular thing uh, on the map. So that that's really my my closing thought with that. Maps are fuzzy. Uh, there's ambiguity all the time whether the maps change from day to day or not. It's also, I might just say, um, this goes back to maybe some of the prep we did for WOC in Denmark. When you're making your own map or looking at maps beforehand of a race, you have to um, you have to be able to sort of change your mind on, on the fly. You have to be flexible when you run the actual race and not be locked into thinking, this gap that I've looked at in Google Street View or looked at on the previous map that the NZM champs um, organizers have uploaded for the sprint you can't be stuck thinking that 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 route there is is the best way because it might change when you go and pick up the map on your way to the start um so that's sort of yeah sort of similar to that situation cool cool uh, the next topic that um this is this is my topic i've really been interested in this at the moment because it's something i'm grappling with uh, here at oringen and that is planning a route uh, in advance or at the control. So just first off, do you have any, any thoughts on, on this? Do you like to plan ahead of time or do you take your orienteering one leg at a time? I'm quite one leg at a time, but I'll definitely have at least my exit direction planned and probably a, a rough idea of the route or the main, main route choice completed before I even see the, previous control but i'm i'm not a sort of person who plans two three legs in advance at least not not yet yeah yeah so in terrain that i'm really comfortable with like auckland sand dunes for example i can plan very far in advance and i can maintain a very straight line in the meantime and everything's happy everyone's everyone's going good i get to every control and i not only know the exit but probably know that you have to go straight to the next control anyway. So maybe most of them don't have that much planning anyway, but the ones that do have planning, 
I'd sussed out pretty early. And I've just come into a number of hard races in, in Europe and these races at O-Ringen, especially where the concentration required just to get the current leg under control is so much that I've been neglecting the planning ahead. And that's only an issue, I think, if you're, if, if you really believe that you should be planning ahead. And so that the first, the first race here in Sweden, I was torn between these two approaches, which is probably the worst place to be, uh, where you're trying to plan ahead in a situation where it's pretty clear that you don't have the skills to be multitasking between the current league and future leagues. So I think there's no right or wrong way to do it, but some terrain really lends itself to planning ahead, like in anything where the runnability is nice, like there's not stony underground, there's not too many branches on the ground. Whereas here in Uppsala in Sweden, some of the terrain has been so tricky that I don't want to think about anything other than getting this next control. And I've had some rough times in the first couple of races here in the forest, just been on the wrong side of that trade-off. Yeah. So you're saying that you'll be losing more time from making mistakes where you're lacking focus because you're trying to look at another league than you would if you just ran that league on its own, stopped the control, plan the next league, run that league. Yeah, definitely. And it reduces the chance of doing ad- admin errors at the control as well because you're not flipping over and flicking back and forward between these different places in the map. You can just reset, refold the map and start on the next one. Um, and that's something that is, I've definitely done uh, two days ago, admin error, leaving one control that I was a little bit flustered on the execution coming in. Uh, there was another competitor there. You know, and then before I know it, I'm navigating from the wrong control. And all these things stack up to so easily outweigh a three-second sacrifice at each control to get myself lined up and come up with a quick plan as I walk maybe the first 10 meters. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely noticing that uh, I should probably, uh, we've got a race tomorrow again. And yeah, I'll just a lot, lot more relaxed. I think I'll be a lot more relaxed at the controls. Just knowing that there's, I don't have to achieve this standard of perfection because plenty of the top guys over here do that as well because they know the trade-off that's been made. I think the issue comes from refusing to acknowledge that there's there's like two ways to do this and it's not like one is right and one is wrong. You could do both of them well as long as you're executing executing that. Yes, and definitely, I guess, as an experienced orienteer, you're used to being able to be planning ahead and you might feel like you're doing bad orienteering if you're not doing a lot of planning ahead. But actually, like you say, it can end up being better in some situations. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the case. I've also found over here that uh, I'm not quite as sharp with the new terrain. Um, It's not totally new to me, but I'm not as sharp as picking up the contour features as I would be with New Zealand mapping. So I'm extra kind of slow, extra slow on uh, the fine detail reading. And so I need to bias myself even more towards unloading um, the the, the the mental load and far more towards just only do what you need to do 
Um, so that's another thing for people to consider when they go to any new terrain. It could even just be Australia. Uh, they come yeah. from New Zealand to Australia and the mapping style is different. So don't come in with the same expectations that you had when you were running in you know, your local Christchurch maps, which you're very comfortable with. You're comfortable with the mapping style. You're comfortable with the types of terrain because you see it all the time. You're going to Australia where it's yeah different the different look in the terrain. You don't recognize the shapes. You don't recognize even just the grasses on the ground that might be different in the valleys and different on the hills, uh, the different colors. You're not really sure what your brain is using to recognize a lot of these things in the terrain. There's a lot of subconscious stuff going on. So I think it's better to probably play it safer and try to wind back from this uh, image of perfection that you had on your local terrain. So yeah, that was one thing that I found uh, quite quite interesting that I'm grappling with uh, at the moment. And the other thing I wanted to uh, talk about in a bit more depth is uh, specificity in, tra in training. So if you know anyone who's done, uh, I guess, exercise science or something along those lines, probably PE at, at high school even, as understood specificity, what does that mean to you, Joseph? For me, it would be um, training uh, like pretty much exactly what, what I think I'm going to be doing in, in a race. So for I've got this ultra long coming up, but I'm also looking into doing the New Zealand um, mountain running champs. And so for the last few weeks, that's been my main focus has been doing hill intervals and repetitions and even looking at the... Um, the, the gradient of of the course and trying to find routes around where I am that are at that at that gradient um so I can get used to it and my body gets get, gets used to it yeah and it's even more I think even more granular than that like different muscles getting used to the different gradient well I guess that, that's what you mean right it's not just all it's not your your you could work your quads on a bicycle you could work your quads on a rowing machine but it's all these other little neglected muscles as well that are getting worked a little bit differently uh, in, in a different gradient or in a different terrain type, which is what I'm noticing over here is that in a flat running race, I'm not that far behind some of these guys over here, but then you put us in terrain and in order to hold on, I have to just blatantly follow because I can't look at the map and look at the ground at the same time. My foot placement is not good enough. I'm not confident enough jumping off, jumping off the rocks onto the, the ground below. I'm definitely not confident running over any of the jagged areas. Um, I find myself yeah, slowing down every time I hit some of these areas where I can't see the ground quite so much. And so what I've believed the past few years is that uh, I can do most of my training in New Zealand because the difference between me and the top guys in Europe is physical. Right. So I just need to get fitter. But what I really failed to acknowledge with that approach is the lack of specificity. I'm getting fitter on the trails and my results, I guess, have shown that over the past five years, but I'm definitely, definitely not getting faster in Swedish and Scandinavian terrain. Definitely not. Maybe even slower, I think, which is kind of come as a bit of a shock actually, because I, thought I'd be closing the gap to the top guys, but I've actually gone backwards. Do you think the your actual 
like your your muscle strength is the main thing there or the coordination like the, yeah impossible too, but... impossible to know and i think when you're that's why specificity in training is really about just accurately replicating what you're going to be experiencing in the race yeah, like holistically replicating it so running in the right kind of terrain itself doesn't mean okay i'm going to run on some stony trails in new zealand instead of stony swedish terrain that's going to get a little bit of something but it's too hard to know what all the components are you're ducking under the trees there's these blueberries on the ground you're popping up onto bare rock and then going down into a soft marsh there's so many components here and I noticed after my first race in Italy two weeks ago how sore my back muscles were from ducking under the the branches, and that was something that I don't know how how much of my fatiguing in a long distance race is actually because of muscles in my back that are no longer stabilizing my torso because they're so pooped. So it's just too hard to know the components, and I think you have to tackle it holistically which can be really tricky from New Zealand, but I, I'm not really in denial about that now. I think it's become quite clear that although I can get fit training in New Zealand, there's not many places where I can actually replicate the terrain specificity. Some terrains you would more than others, right? So there's there'd be some terrains in Europe or otherwhere in the in the world we would be able to replicate reasonably okay in, in New Zealand if you know exactly what you're looking for which I guess that can be really helpful if you're on a on a trip overseas maybe and you go to the like the terrain often people do this the terrain before the next year's world champs and then you you know challenges and you can maybe match it match it um, as best you can in New Zealand you might be able to yeah, find a forest that is the most similar and gives you know, the same pain in your back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you can also target races over here that are not in quite so specialized terrain also. So races in Estonia and Latvia that have done, suddenly I'm closer to the front. Czech Republic, okay, I'm only like four minutes behind the top guys. Go to Sweden, suddenly I'm eight minutes behind the same people. And I have just as good of a race. So um, I can, you can definitely um, take some of those factors into account. Uh, also seeing some of the, the JWAP races that we've done uh, best at have been in terrain that definitely wasn't Scandinavian. So that's a huge chunk of the field that no longer has this um, high level of confidence to the very particular type of terrain. And the very particular look of the terrain as well. Like the bushes are different in different places in Europe. The tree types are different. The leaf cover is different. And so that they can't pick out these features so fast. So yeah, I think going for anything that's unique, I guess, or more generic, like super unique so that no one is hyper-specialized at it or kind of more generic so that it's, a, it's an even playing field, stuff like, yeah, Czech Republic that everyone's kind of run on terrain like that before. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point, though, because often people would think, I imagine, that the main challenge going to somewhere different for you is the navigation, but it is, they're saying the physical component actually makes a, makes a big difference as well. Yeah, I think that's what I've noticed. Once I've got over that hurdle of not being a terrible navigator, 
um, which of course, of course, took many years to get over that hurdle. But yeah, once you're there, I think, so yeah, those who are um, younger or, or older and looking to um, do some more specific training, um, yeah, I do think you have to have a, a careful look at the terrain you're racing and and find what you can locally. Uh, but I've underestimated the importance of that basically in the past three, three or four years. Um, and yeah, just haven't really done much in terrain at all and have been pretty blase about that, uh, but it's pretty noticeable. What pretty do you think about now. the specificity of the climate? I was talking to Felix on a, on a run and about his Jowett races. And he said, yeah, he just felt, felt terrible and a lot less fit when he was running in the heat in Portugal. And then he came back to New Zealand last weekend and won the sprint and long at the NZ schools champs. And he felt like his fitness just jumped, jumped straight back up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How, how big of an impact do you think that plays? Yep. Definitely a big impact. And I think there's research that shows that your body takes a couple of weeks to adapt to a high, to high, um, like weather temperature uh, change. So specificity again, maybe you need to spend some time in a sauna or maybe you need to train with a thermal on or a thermal plus a jacket plus long pants, just like overdo it because 37 degrees when you're racing is overdoing it. So if you want to prepare properly, then you've kind of got to do some pretty funny looking things. Yeah. Tread, treadmill with a thermal on in the gym kind of stuff like that. Um, just try to get your body uh, used to it because it is a shock for sure going from winter to heat wave european heat wave summer um and yeah I've, I've done it before fortunately not this year but yeah that must be very tough for the uh the jaywalkers getting thrown into the furnace like that for sure for sure cool so what are you looking forward to uh in in the next month you mentioned uh some of the races you're you're working towards is there um anything else that that you're you're doing on the side i'm um pretty happy to be a spectator for the next the next few weeks so uh, i know a lot of people that are going to the the world university champs in in switzerland and that will be that'll be really cool there's quite a big quite a big team this year especially in the men's men's side um so that'll be that'll be really cool to watch especially switzerland i'm i know they're all very very excited excited for that challenge and then there's also the um world cup the european champs that's being held in in estonia um and we've only i think we've got, only got two kiwis there this year because tim is in new zealand but that will be that will be cool to cool to see yeah i'm looking forward to watching the coverage of those races also um i'm moving to canada so i've got a bit on my plate to get our kind of lives reorganized and sorted in the past, in the next uh, few weeks. So, um, yeah, there'll be, uh, hopefully some time to, to watch some of the races and I'm looking forward to continuing to do, do training in a new environment again and check yeah, out uh, a new city. Cool discover, discover all the new, all the new trails there. Do you know mm -hmm. much about the orienteering scene? Yeah, so in Vancouver, where we are, is uh, a reasonable sprint orienteering scene. Lots of lots of good sprint maps, actually. 
the forest there is fairly bushy actually so the uh, the classic orientarian is not um, quite as uh, inspiring and there's a, a number of other cities that are just two hours away that actually have also some activity and some quite diverse maps as well so i think we're looking forward to doing some weekends away to check out all these different types of terrain but oh, once cool. yeah once again i think the, the local stuff will be mainly trail running but i'm looking forward to maybe finding a terrain loop or some kind of softer ground and stonier ground that i can do on a weekly basis to get that specificity that we were talking about because uh yeah in wellington i've just been on the hard trails and it might be time to get some some softer running in somehow do you think you would try to use that and time yourself on the same loop each each week to to track your progress yeah we could if it's a standard loop then i'm always interested in can't help but compare between week on week um but i also just like exploring also so um just going going rogue on a hill somewhere might might also be something that happens cool well thank thanks for um doing the first one with with us joe and um because we've got this rolling host i'm not 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 quite sure at the stage he'll be on um next month but uh stay well and yeah see you next time look forward to more see you jane if you liked the show please support it by sharing this podcast with one person who would benefit from it the best place to find more content like this is at genebeverage.nz where you can find years of training blogs, race reports, podcasts and coaching videos. If you don't want to miss future episodes, I recommend subscribing to my newsletter by visiting genebeverage.nz or by following on social media, Perfect Flow on Facebook and genebeverage on Instagram. For Q&A, send messages to nav at perfectflow.nz.